it's that time again. It's flat out RC podcast time, the podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis, and drones. My name's Andrew Sill, coming to you from the land down under in sunny Melbourne, Australia. I'll tell you what, we have a jam packed episode for you this week because I've got to tell you about the Wang Jets event I went to. I've got to tell you about some upcoming events. And we have a special guest, an international guest, who happens to be in Australia at the moment. As you listen to this, he's actually in Australia. Philip Kolb, the gliding guru. You've got to listen to this one. No matter whether you're into gliding or not, you've got to listen to Philip's story. So let's just get into it. Let's have a look at what's been happening. Before I start telling you about my Wang Jets experience, I've, I've got to bring you up to speed with some events that are coming up. I'm getting they're coming in thick and fast. So if you do have events coming up, please feel free to send them to me so I can spread the word. Uh, look, even if they're international events, send them to me uh, and we'll have a look. Uh, the Bragg Club, the Ball Ball Radio Modelers Association of Gippsland, are there having their official club opening, even though they've been open for a while. They wanted to have a big event to celebrate the opening of their new club. And it's happening this Sunday, the 19th of March, at the Blue Rock Float Fly at their field, the Bragg Club. Uh, 24 Blue Rock Road, Willow Grove, Victoria. Um, now, I know they're having raffles and stuff like that. I've mentioned this before. I think I probably got the dates wrong. But anyway, it's the 19th of March. Um, the Bragg Club is ready to show off our site to the Victorian RC model community. It's, it's located on the banks of the Blue Rock Lake. Uh, so float flying, and they've also got a strip. So um, I might be heading to down to this. May well be. I'm in negotiations with a friend of mine. So that's coming up this week, 19th of March. Now, the Bragg Club, you can go to, I don't know whether they've got a Facebook page, to be honest. Um, but if you have a look at, they've got a website, I think, um, boreborrc.com.au is the website, www.bawbawrc.com.au. That's where you can go out to find more information. Flyers, entry fees, $10, spectators, gold coin donation, catering will be available on site. So that's coming up on the 19th. Uh, then... I'm just going through all my notes here. Which is the next one that's coming up? Okay, the next one that's coming up is my home field, the Pakenham Districts Aircraft Radio Control Society is having their annual 2023 Monty Tyrrell Scale Weekend. It's a two-day event this year. Uh, and uh, there's a bunch of support from sponsors, Model Flight, Stars, Scale Aero Products, Fixed Scale Group is very involved in this. So they're um, really trying to get behind the scale movement and competition movement so they'll be along with the uh, BMW and NAAA bring to you this Monty Tyrrell scale weekend at the P&Darks field if you're down in Melbourne you know all about the P&Darks field one of the biggest clubs going around in the country uh, be run over two days starting on Saturday April the 1st and continuing through to Sunday so the April 1st and 2nd April Fool's Day April the 2nd Non-powered camping sites and hot showers are available at the field at no charge to participating entrance. Fields available set up and fly from Friday, March the 31st. Models may be left at the field during the weekend with around 120 square metres of undercover storage. 
Um, cost for flying competitors, two days is $20 per entrant or $25 payable on the day if you go prepaid. Uh, Non-flying entrant fee is $10. Well, you get less five dollars for Vic Scale or PNDARKS members. So, if you're a member of PNDARKS, it's twenty twenty bucks. Non-flying entrance fee is ten dollars. So, it's a bit of a fundraising event as well for the club, which has a lot of big plans and um, good prize draw. Model flights uh, donated a Hangar Nine Piper Pawnee a Brave ARF uh, to give that away. So, that's a pretty good prize. Um, scar models of all classes and all sizes are welcome. It's a fun fly event. If you do have heavy models or turbines, make sure you've got your certificates. No certification flights will be permitted from 5 p.m. on the Friday. Multiple flight lines, big height limit. There's also a bit of a competition, best civilian military aircraft award, Monte Tyrrell award, best turbine aircraft, best junior pilot, best scale build, and um, some five by $100 fuel vouchers to be given away by the MAAA. So lots of support. That is happening on the 1st and 2nd of April at P and Darks. And the final one that I want to talk about is um, up in Queensland, the RC Scale Queensland Scale Competition. Daniel Wheeler sent this one through to me, hosted by the Tingalpa Model Aero Club at Stanton Road, West Tingalpa. It's a two-day event, April 1st and 2nd, so same weekend as the Monte Tyrrell, but this is up in Queensland, the Monte Tyrrell down here in Melbourne. Uh, start time 7.30am. So it's a scale competition. The classes will be flying only, team scale, F4H and F4C. Static judging for F4C, F4H and team scale. Don't forget your documentation. So if you've got uh, those F4C, F4H kind of models, you've got to have that documentation to support your build. So MAAA members are welcome. So it's the 1st and 2nd of April at the Tingalpa Model Aero Club. Uh, they're all trying to get behind this scale scene, trying to improve the competition, which is good to see. So three events there, the Bragg Club, the Pat P and Arcs Club, and uh, the other event up in Queensland at Tingalpa as well, the uh, RC Scale Queensland Scale Competition. So there you have it. Plenty, it is massive event season. I want to tell you a bit about the event that I went to last weekend, uh, the Wang Jets, which is pretty much the most iconic turbine jet event here in Australia, held down in a town called Wangaratta. That's why we call it Wang Jet. It's commonly known as Wang to the locals. So the Wang Jets event's been running for many years now. I'm not sure exactly how many, but it's I think it's over 20 years. And uh, it's an event that sees people travel from all around Australia to come to, you know, and it's held at a full-size aerodrome. Uh which is always a good experience and a great place to fly turbine jets. So it's a four-day event. Um, I just went on Saturday. I uh, didn't fly this year, as many of you may be aware. I crashed my jet last year. I do have a replacement jet. I just haven't built it. Uh, so it wasn't, didn't go to fly, but did take the camera gear. So I've got plenty of photographs, and a video is now live on the Flat Out RC YouTube channel. That is a bit of fun having a look at the event, some of the scenes from the event, and a bit of a story about how much people spend on their jets. Yes, I went for a clickbait title. Try to get some extra people to watch that video. So jump onto the Flat Out RC YouTube channel and you can see that video that is now live from the Wang Jets event. But let me tell you a bit about it. The numbers were down a little bit from previous years, only because there were so many other events on. We had um, down at the Barossa Valley in South Australia, it was a big pattern competition, the Masters. As uh, the annual um, Bairnsdale Fun Fly, the Bairnsdale Club down here. Um, so, you know, there was probably at least seven to nine participants that were down at Bairnsdale that would normally be at the Wang Jets event. 
but it was still a good, well, well-run event. The, the the committee of the VJAA that host the event just do a wonderful job. And I was thinking about it as I was driving home from the event. They need to do more work to get that event up and running, those jet events up and running, because they're held at airports. So there's a lot of admin work around that. Plus, even on the day, they have a trailer which has got firefighting equipment on it, just in case there's a fire. They have these big fiberglass sort of surrounds that go over the runway lighting to protect them and also the models so there's a lot of uh, they have to be listening on the radio just in case um you know there's emergency planes want to land whether it's the air ambulance or as was the case on saturday uh, a um, plane that was running low on fuel had to come in and land so they, they really do a wonderful job um to put that event on paul mccarthy's president there and a lot of good guys helping out greg escort clark williams the, you guys know who you are but the committee do a really, really good job uh, down there. Uh, so, yeah, plenty of planes, plenty of planes. Um, you know, they brought the event forward by two, three weeks to try to get into, tap into sort of that March good weather that we experienced down here in Victoria. And uh, it worked. It was just phenomenal flying conditions. Um, warm, no wind. Uh, it was just, yeah, probably the best, best I've seen at the Wayne Jets um, when I've been there. Probably the best best conditions I've seen at a lot of different events. Uh, so there was plenty of flying and some really good models. Standouts for me were Philip Singh's F-86, uh, which is a really, really big jet, and that just flew beautifully. He, he said that it flew like a trainer. Um, bigger is better, as they say, and it flew beautifully. Uh, Paul McCarthy flew his F-16 really well. Clark Williams and uh, Greg Ledicki flew... They're L39s, matching L39s. Uh, but, yeah, I just uh, Steve Wilcox had his big uh, starfighter there. Um, so, yeah, uh, awesome planes, usual array, sport jets, Viper jets. Mark Taddy was there with his Sukhoi. Had a slight engine hiccup, which prevented it from flying on the Saturday and Sunday, but uh, did get some flights in and uh, flew his uh, Avanti sport jet, as did his partner, Lisa. Uh everything excaliburs to f18s lots of viper jets of course love viper jet so well done to everybody a really enjoyable event um as i said go and have a look at the video you see some of the, the the planes that were there um but um yeah when you go to an event like that you come back wanting to fly jets and i, I think it's it's just the environment um out at Wangaratta at the airport. Um, the local Lions Club really helped out with food. Um, the CFA were there on hand just in case there were any mishaps. But all around, a, a really, really good event, something that the the organisers can be really proud of. And I've said it once again, I love going to the Wang Jets. Stay tuned for it next year. I, I don't know what date it'll be. It'll be in March or early April, one of the two. Uh, but stay tuned for it. You've got to get it down there. If you're into Jets, put it on your calendar now. Come visit the Wang Jets event. So, yeah, go and have a look at the video. Uh, Bensdale event, I had some friends down there. They said that was really good. They experienced some good weather as well. Uh, it was a long weekend down here in Victoria. We had a public holiday on the Monday. So a lot of people got out flying and made a bit of a, a bit of a holiday out of it all. So I know that plenty of flying was done um, down there. My friend Dominic was down there, head of the peanut gallery. He flew a jet down there. No, I didn't go to Wang Jets. He should have gone to Wang Jets. But anyway, he was down at, well, look, in saying that, I do like the Bensdale Club and, and I've got good friends down there. And Tony Wilson uh, led the charge once again. Um, 
lots of different planes flown down there, turbines, scale planes, aerobatic planes, a good event as well. And that, that's always been held on this long weekend, that event. So that Beansdale event's been sort of a long-running event. I reckon it's been on the card since they opened the club. Um, so well done to everybody down there as well. So, geez, so many events. And unfortunately, the weather's been good. So uh, great times. Love going to events. You, if, if, no matter where you're located, whether you're here in Australia or you're overseas, um, you've got to love uh, an event. Get on down to your local events. Now, I want to have a shout-out. I just I just remember, I've just got my computer in front of me, um, and I got a, an email, and... Um, it came from a gentleman by the name of, I'm just waiting for it to come up here, Kevin Cessna. I don't know whether that's his real name, but that's the name that he put down, Kevin Cessna. And um, he he's, he's comes from the US and he sent me a message saying how he um, he wanted to tell me that he's really been enjoying the podcast. He started from the beginning listening to them all. Um, I've been flying for about two and a half years, just getting into iMac, flying basic, um, would love to catch up with Jace Ducey. He's only three hours away from Jace. And I said to him, yeah, you've got to go and see him fly because he's a great guy. Uh, he's from the Mid-Mississippi RC Club. They're on, the, on Facebook, Mid-Mississippi RC Club. He said, if you want to have a look, your podcasts are educational for a young pilot like me. Well, not so young. He's 55. Um, I think this hobby is so cool to bring so many people together from so far away places. So, uh, And he's been listening to a few of the uh, podcasts. So uh, he... Uh, well, thanks for that, Kevin. Thanks for writing a message to me. And I'm glad to hear that you are enjoying the podcast all the way from the Mid-Mississippi RC Club. I'll tell you what, I'd love to get on down there. And it's not just about the flying. It's that, that Southern American food. I do like my food. Anyway, Kevin, thanks a lot. Glad you're enjoying it. guest time my favorite part of the podcast and i'll tell you what what a guest we have got uh for you this this week we've got another international guest gentleman by the name of philip kolb and uh, i got put onto philip by a couple of people mike o'reilly and uh john copeland um have both been on the podcast before and they're avid glider guys john's really been at the forefront of gps triangle racing glider triangle racing here in australia and Mike, of course, is a massive, massive stalwart of the hobby in Australia, uh, having run Model Flight um, and uh, been an avid glider guy, competed at many world champs, still loves flying. Uh, I always say that when it comes to the industry, you know, I've got some good good people down here, you know, Boomer RC, the Gel family, they love their flying. But Mike O'Reilly is one of those guys that ran a business and still does around hobby supplies but has never lost the passion for flying. So they put me onto this guy, Philip Kolb, and I had, and Philip has done everything in gliding. He, he's he's a gun of a guy. He's not only is he a really really competent flyer, uh, competed at many world championships and and uh, you know placed in those and uh, a champion GPS triangle racer, but he's also been involved in designing gliders as well from you know the Samba models, you know the Pike um, models and stuff like that. So. Really interested to have a chat. And he's come to Australia. He was at, um, competing at the Southern Soaring League's 50th anniversary celebration event. Um, and he's heading up to Queensland now to, to, to go up there and he's going to do some talks and stuff like that. So a massive, massive legend in our home turf of Australia. Uh, and so 
I caught up with him whilst he was still in Germany. So we recorded this um, a week or week and a half or so ago. So uh, Kevin's in Australia now. And I did want to try to bring it earlier, but uh, anyway, the schedule didn't fit. So here's my chat with Philip Kolb, a legendary RC glider guy. Well, it's my pleasure to to head to Germany to a gentleman that's actually going to be in Australia. As this podcast goes to air, this gentleman's actually in Australia, in Adelaide of all places. Philip Kolb, the renowned RC glider guru, thanks for joining me. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, let's position, where are you sitting at the moment? (laughs) At the moment, I'm still sitting in my office in Germany, uh, close to the to the Frankfurt area and looking outside uh, I just took the opportunity to sit in the office because it's calm and I can easily talk to you but yeah we have still winter it's starting to to get spring uh, I think in about three to four weeks uh yeah and it's icy cold and windy <laughs> I told, as I said to you just before we started recording that we have the opposite here in Australia at the moment it's it's, it's been quite warm you know, it's our summertime period. Actually, we're, we're moving into into autumn now. You know, this in mm-hmm. March we moved to autumn, and but it's still quite warm. We've had some really hot days in in South Australia, where you're where you'll be heading as a, yeah. a guest. You're coming as a guest to Australia to share your knowledge, compete in some events, and that kind of thing. So there's so many people that are excited to have you down here. And as I said, this podcast is actually airing whilst you're here, so we're, we're sort of jumping the gun, but. Let's get into it. Let's, you know, where did the Philip Kolb story start in aero modeling? Well, I need to go back, I think, uh, for for the whole rest, for the whole, uh, yeah, for my whole life. Uh, I, I was always interested in anything which was flying. And I actually can't remember when it started. I only hear the stories from my parents, which are telling me, when I was in my baby trolley and I was looking up to everything which which was flying in the sky, my eyes were always skybound. And yeah, it, it started when I really when I when I tried to give my persifier a go and I, I wanted to let it fly. And I was always <laughs> telling it to fly. This, this yeah. is this is what my mother always tells me. And this is actually how it started. And my 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 dad, he he, he took a look upon it and then he went to the to a toy shop to to buy some uh, aero models which are yeah able to fly when you toss them and this is this is how i started actually thanks to my to my dad who who figured it out that i uh yeah that a persifier is not the best uh, thing to to get airborne that's right that's right so but it, what i'm interested in is okay they they got you that that you know little what we call a chuck glide a little throw you know plane that you yeah. throw around <laughs> But how did you keep on progressing from there? I'm always interested in that second step. You know, what happened after the first plane that you were given? Yeah, actually, it was still my dad who um, had a colleague in his in his company who, at that time, uh, yeah, who who was a, a world champion in scale modeling. Maybe you know for, about Heinz Simon, who yeah. took the the me 163 comet to a world champions win in in scale modeling and he just told him oh if you have a kid who who loves to to chuck gliders and to to yeah build models bring him to a club i can show you an address uh, come to us and we will help you out and this was 
Yeah, this was, so to say, the second step, because when you have people around you who can help you, can show you what it's all about, you don't get uh, that uh, much disappointed from the beginning when, when you have some, yeah, some bad experiences because what you think about flying won't work out. And so, yeah, this was the second step. And maybe you remember the company Graupner was yes. very big in Germany. And so we... We got a what was called Kleiner Uhu, um, which was famous at that time. And it, it's a 1.2 meter uh, free flight glider. We were building this. And from there on, we just thought, yeah, why not uh, trying to, to control the planes and get a, a radio control? Yeah. And, and so it took off. What year are we talking? Um, this was in 1988. I was 12 years old at that time, and we had a small two-channel radio and a 2.5-meter wooden glider. Um, yeah, and this was called Mosquito. It was from Graupner as well, and this was my first uh, RC model. So it was a two-channel glider with a, exactly. with a bungee launch? Exactly, bungee launch. And then it was the time when... Um, when electric soaring started off with uh, brushed motors and nickel cadmium cells, and we, we just thought, yeah, let's let's get some of these things going because then, yeah, you don't need to land all the time. You can you can uh, try and get airborne with your motor, and when you don't hit a terminal, you can give it a go again. Uh, yeah, and this is this is how it how it started actually. A lot of people that I've interviewed started via. RC gliders, uh, you know, a, a yeah. lot of people, including myself. And, but did you ever, it sounds like you, you started with gliders and you stayed with gliders, but did you ever, did you ever go into other powered planes as well? No, not really. The, the only power plane I really flew um, was way later um, when I was towing up other gliders. Uh, and it wasn't my own one. It just, we didn't have a tow pilot, uh, but a tow plane. And this tow pilot of the tow plane wanted to fly gliders too. So I took over the controls and I, I towed people up. But yeah, I, I never was bound to to uh, planes which were pr preliminary uh, driven by motors. I just really thought it's it's the the essential thing to, to fly a glider. Um, because it's tough to to stay airborne, and every every flight is different. Because yeah, you're you're not bound to do your program or something. You're really um, trying to yeah to to maximize your potential with the potential energy which is in the air, which mind you is invisible as well. <laughs> so that's exactly, where the challenge exactly. comes into it. Yeah, which which makes it much more interesting, and then of course this this topic of competing gets into it as well because once you figured out that you can manage to stay in the air, then you want to do it better than than your fellow. And I figured out it's it's not about real tough competition in in soaring; it's about a competition scene where. Almost everyone knows each other, and you try to move on to, to get better and better. Yeah, with everyone, you know, it's not just like that you are competing against each other; you compete with each other, and that's that's what made it uh, made it so much more fun for me. That's that's an interesting point because I've been watching some of the competition scenes here in Australia, and 
a lot of people say to me that the reason why they go to competitions is because they just love being there with the other people and that it's a, it's very much a social event and, and, yes, a social event where you go flying. And I think that helps keep people motivated and continue to want to turn up to the next event and travel the distances that sometimes we need to down here in Australia to turn up to different events. But, uh, yeah, you explained it very, very well. Now, obviously there were other people at your club that were flying gliders that you were flying with. So did you have any mentors early on? Actually, mentors, I, I wouldn't say so. But um, in my school, there was a, uh, a schoolmate of mine who wasn't in, in the same club. And so we were we were always trying to push each other. And that was quite good. And as soon as, as we went... Uh, yeah, to, to become juniors and we could fly in the junior category. Our dads were just, uh, yeah, taking their time to, to bring us to, to junior events and later on to the first competitions. And as soon as we, we went 18 and uh, got our driving license, we were, we were doing this for ourselves. Okay. And okay. So when do you start out with a radio control bungee launch gliders? And when you started competing, what were you competing in? It was a, a kind of a soaring competition, which is nowadays, um, yeah, you, you might think it's, it, it's called F3J, um, where it's just like thermal duration, but it wasn't a man-on-man event at that base. So everybody was flying after each other, which uh, yeah, gave it a, a lucky punch as well. So you needed to have the right air to, yeah, to, to fulfill the task. Um, it was called F3BE, which is not known, I think, outside of Germany. But very soon, um, F3J took off. It was the yeah, beginning of the 90s, mid of the 90s, where you had Euro uh, tour events. That means it's all over Europe. There are some, um, some competitions. And yeah, as you know, Europe is very close every every country is very close to the other country it's i think the absolute opposite of, of australia true yes. um, so you, you drive 500 kilometer and you're you're in a different country and you you go and compete there and this is this is what we did when we were still students but had our driving license so we took the summertime and went to three or four competitions and this was mainly f3j okay so f3j is with winch launch isn't it uh, right now it is with winch launch. During that days it was uh, hand tow, so you had two people um, towing for the other teammates, and that means you needed to have a team, which is quite nice because I like this component that you, yeah, that you help each other and that you're competing as a team. And uh, best way would be to have a four-man team, two people towing, the other ones flying and coaching, and then you take turns. And this is what it was about. You had a, a hand tow equipment um, with uh, with a tow bar and 150 meters of line, and it was yeah rather cheap to um, to buy. So it, it, it didn't need to get a, a an expensive winch, which was uh, for me as a student at that time a, a real a real plus. And what were the what were the models that you were flying back then? Were they balsa models or composite models? Actually, my, my first F3J model, um, yeah, a, a, how to say a designated F3J model was an Airtronic Segida from 1979, oh, okay, yeah, where yeah. we got a hold of, yeah, <laughs> it was balsa, but I would say the Segida is a 
still, it still is a very sophisticated balsa model with diagonal ribs to, to handle the torsion loads and everything. Um, but very soon after that, uh, we were trying to build our own planes. So we got a hold of some uh, Czech-made Czech uh, glass fiber fuselages, and we were doing foam obachi wings for, for ourselves. And that was the next component to, to start into designing planes where you think you can get a little better um, with the budget of a junior, of course. Now, that brings us to... I'm reading the notes that I was given, that you started building and designing your own models quite early, didn't you? That's true. That's true. At the age of 16, um, I started to build my, my first hand launch gliders because during that days, it, it was very easy to just take a, a carbon rod a tube um, as a spar and then you just uh, put the, the, the ribs on like on a string of pearls and you glued it uh, on the next day you sheeted the wing and then on the next day you put on some cover so within a week you could have built a, a new model because it's just 1.5 meters in span and there i made my first experiences of what will work what might not work and where to get better and what to try out and you could do yeah loops of, of new tryouts in a in a very fast time and after that yeah when we started to fly f3j uh it it was it was the next step of course then we we took the winter time to to build a new model um in in formobachi veneered uh wings yeah and and this is how it started were you doing a lot of research when it came to the design or was it a bit of trial and error um i would say both of it in the beginning you know as a junior you're most of the time um yeah you you don't uh, yeah, you don't take your time to just read and to figure something out. You're, yeah, you, you're very how to say. Um, yeah, you want to you want to do something. You want to get started, and uh, therefore, um, I think it, in the beginning it was a, a kind of mix between trial and error and researching. And as I figured out, trial and error might not be the the perfect way. Yeah, then I. I took my nose into some books from Michael Selig at that time to read about, uh, yeah, airfoils, airfoil performance. And, uh, yeah, during that days, we had quite a lot of, uh, really good, uh, model designers in Germany. For example, Ralf Decker, Dieter Pfefferkorn and Helmut Quabeck, who are well known for their F3B designs from the eighties. And I tried to, figure out what what they already knew and what i could maybe learn from them and so it was a yeah a, a give and, and get and uh, i took some turns in in designing my planes what, what i find interesting is not only did you fall in love with the gliders but the design of the gliders as well at a very young age really even at 16 my son's about to turn 16 and i'm having enough trouble trying to get him to get out of bed in, on in the morning and do his homework, but you're here oh. doing research on, on models and and things like that. I suppose at that era uh, that you were starting to develop your models, were, with was technology coming into it? Were, were things changing from traditional balsa ply kind of models? I would say it already happened before I started, uh, but I just couldn't afford it at the time, um, especially building molded gliders. Uh, and so I think you... You at least need to have a group um, 
or you need to have a lot of money and a good job with a lot of spare time as well. And I didn't have all of that. So yeah, we, we started off with balsa veneered or obachi veneered foam wings. And after that, when I, when I started uh, university, uh, I, I went to Munich for, for studying and I uh, came in contact with the Munich F3B uh, group. And there I learned a lot about molding, etc. And yeah, so it, it took a next turn, but it wasn't like that there were some inventions and I could take them over. I think I was uh, already too late for that. Uh, I just, um, yeah, as, as soon as I, as I started molding, then I figured out like we, we can maybe find some, some easier techniques, some better technology, and we can maybe, um, get better materials, which were coming at the days. Yeah. Okay. Now we'll digress. Now I want to talk a bit about how you went from designing for yourself and building some models, uh, to then designing models for other companies because mm -hmm. I've got a list here of the different models that you've designed and, you know, some of the big names like the, the, the Pike Precision, which, you know, we've many people here in Australia have flown that you, know, you, you were involved with all these, uh, the Pike Paradigm. Uh, model now, yeah. which I think is a new new model, isn't it? A GPS. It's it's the latest model. one, yes. Yeah. absolutely. So you know, these are some some pretty renowned um, models that you've been in, involved in in designing. How did you go from sixteen year old into designing mm -hmm. designing planes that are, are now in manufacture? Yeah, yeah. The the cool thing actually is when you fly competitions. Um, yeah. On, on the one way or the other, you, you try and, and uh, learn to know the, um, the distributors and as well the manufacturers. And so I uh, came across Samba models, which were uh, extensively flying F3J at these days, and they were building really good models. Um, I would say during that days, uh, the top of the crop models were Jaro Müller models. But uh, I never came close to Jaro Müller at these days. But we saw uh, Samba models, which is uh, Jaroslav and Vlastimil Vostrel from Czech Republic. Um, yeah, almost on every weekend. And so we, of course, came in to talk and they just said, oh, Philip, you're building your models with foam Obachi, but they're flying really good. Could you give us some advice? And I just said, oh, I don't know exactly, but, hmm. and this is how it started to, that we, that we got closer to each other and it uh, culminated for the first time in, in the Pike Perfect. And this was about 2005, 2006, where the task was to, to build or to manufacture an F3J plane which you can fly in every uh, in every condition, in every uh, weather condition. Up to then, we had two or three different models to cope with a different weather. And the task was to build one plane, which you build maybe in two or three different versions, but you can fly one plane for the whole set of, of competition uh, parameters. Yeah, this, this was, so to say, the first step. And then, yeah, you know, the Pike Paradigm is, is built from Samba model as well. So I would say since, yeah, let's say almost 20 years, 18 years at last, um, 
uh, yeah, we, we were always cooperating and I think it's a very good cooperation. And then um, a good friend of mine during that day, he was studying um, aeronautical engineering. His name is Benjamin Rodax. And he, of course, got way deeper into all these aerodynamics. And together we were trying to make uh, the best of aerodynamics, of structure, etc., cetera, uh, feasible for the, for the competitions. And not only for F F3J, but for F3B and F3F, which then came uh, into, the, into the pike precision, which you, which you told about. Uh, yeah, and so it moved on and it was just a, a give and take and a learning by learning and uh, we got the, the good opportunity to, to build planes with Samba model, um, who was, who were always keen about uh, giving us, uh, yeah, the possibility to take our creations, but then, uh, yeah, put them to the market. What's interesting is that, yes, you, you were building competition models, but in this list of, of models, there's also some, also some scale models as well that you did with other with other companies as well. That's true, and uh, actually they are competition models too, uh, because uh, about 15 years ago uh, there was a new um, competition class emerging in Switzerland because Christoph Mechtler, who, who was the guy who invented this. Uh, thought about putting some um, GPS sensors in the plane so that you can navigate the plane whilst you're standing on the ground via some fixed points which you determined before the flight. So it's getting close to uh, full-size soaring uh, racing. And this just started then. And because of the GPS equipment was rather big at that base, they just chose to do it with scale gliders. And yeah, as I, as I like gliders, even the scale gliders, I like them a lot. Um, I just thought, wow, that's, that's a very interesting competition format. And I just figured out you need to um, take a look upon the, the, the scale glider and you need to take the scale glider in a scale of one over three, not bigger. And what are the boundaries? What are the limitations? Which scale gliders are probably uh, suitable for this format? And so it came uh, to to that end that I started GPS flying. And of course, I wanted to build my own plane as well. And then I built an own plane. And after that, um, yeah, other producers uh, came on by and asked, oh, could you design a plane for us? So the word of mouth spread very quickly about how good your models were, obviously, and these other brands wanted to work with you. The, the, this, this, this is massive as to what you've been involved <laughs> with. Uh, and, okay, so uh, the, uh, let's talk a bit about the Pike Paradigm, the new model. Uh, oh, yeah. Because I've had John Copeland on the podcast who's a bit of a pioneer down here with GPS racing, and he sort of told us about, you know, a new category that's sort of, sort of a sport class model, which is, you know, doesn't necessarily need to be a scale model, and that's really helping get some numbers up. How does yeah. the Pike paradigm differ to something like a Pike uh, Precision or something else that you've designed before? Yeah, actually, it is it is a bigger glider. That's, that's the first thing. Um, wh whenever you, you experience that you started flying with a small glider and then you... Um, took the step to a bigger one. You will always get impressed about the 
the much better performance because they are bigger. So that's basically the first thing on the paradigm. It's a big glider and you fly it at a relatively high wing loading. So you can cover more ground, you can go to different air, and it still handles amazingly well, like an, like an F5J plane, but with the legs of an F3B plane on steroids or something, because it's big. So this, this is basically the, the difference to, to a pike precision. When you want to fly on a small slope, of course, then you should take the pike precision. But this is, this is what is behind the pike paradigm. The pike paradigm actually fills the gap, I would say, between an F3B plane and a one over three scale glass glider, but you can toss it by hand, you know? So yeah, you can always go out and, and fly with these planes as long as you have a decent patch of uh, yeah ground to land it. They're a little bit heavier, aren't they, than a, a normal uh, F5J yeah. kind of plane? True, true. Because this is um, based in the rules of the of the sport class. The sport class is defined by having a plane which is not larger than five meters in span, which is not heavier than seven kilograms, and has no higher wing loading than seventy five grams per square decimeter. So, of course, you want to fly the plane when you want to cover ground as heavy as possible, which means seven kilograms at that. Uh, uh, particular model. Well, they look a bit heavier than um, than an F5J in that, especially in the fuselage. A lot things. heavier. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Yeah, in, in in the fuselage, you still you still need to install your your GPS equipment and all the gadgets, and you want them to work. So you don't want to stuff everything in as tight as possible. I think you can build these fuselages um, with lesser diameter. But they still need to work when they are, let's say, 700, 800 meters away. And you still want to have a connection to your uh, ground station where you're, where you're navigating the plane on. So you don't want to have any radio frequency losses. And therefore, you have a little bit more space in this, in this fuselage so that the antennas and everything can work inside. Oh, that's my biggest problem. I have an F5J glider. And I'm putting uh -huh. it together, and I'm terrible at wiring things up. And it's like spaghetti inside the fuselage. Yeah, and I yeah, don't. It's like a I'm... bottle ship, right? Oh, is it? Is it just me, or because I don't know no. how to make this thing? No. There is just no room. Of course, parasitic drag is always a thing. You know, we we learned about that when we were building the new fuselages for the for the pipe precision. We had a pike precision first fuselage, which was rather narrow. And then um, we still made it more narrow, which was called slim fuselage. Then. And even I, as I'm a tall guy, uh, it's, it's terrible to work inside. It's really like uh, building up one of these bottle ships, but you can feel it in the air. I really flew the plane the first time and I felt it's faster, it's quicker, it's turning better because of less parasitic drag. At least you need to understand that these planes, now that they are so sophisticated and have almost everywhere laminar airflow on the wings, on the tails, with no protruding uh, linkages outside, the only thing where you can really spare massive drag is on the rear part of the fuselage. And this is why they are so skinny. Okay, well, that, that, that leads me to the question, like, what is the current focus with these models? Because the, you know, we've got to a pretty good point, I believe, with, with these competition gliders and how they fly. 
that they're lightweight, you know, carbon fiber constructions, you know, all fully molded. But but what is the current mm-hmm. philosophy? What are, what are designers trying to achieve now to take things to the next level? I would say that the first thing you always have in mind is um, the framework of the specific competition rules. This is, of course, the, the first thing which is driving your design. And you can calculate about it. Uh, therefore, of course, when you take, for example, the sport class, you have these seven kilograms as well as the 75 square decimeters, uh, wing, 75 grams per square decimeter wing loading. And just by calculating, you figure out you need to have a wing which has 93.33 square decimeters of area to meet both criteria at the same time. And this is where you start from. And then you develop, like, on, of course, aerodynamic uh, performance. You develop on structural issues, like, can I even build this to the G loads, which I, uh, which I expect? And the third thing is, yeah, some um, practical issues. Can I fit my equipment in? And this is how this shape is created. And looking back the last 20 years, I can figure out that there were some significant changes in model design occurring after we got the possibilities of either new building technology or new materials. Um, there were, for example, in 2007, uh, there was a new way of um, weaving carbon fibers coming up, which is called spreto carbon. I'm sure you might have heard about it. And this gave the opportunity to build lighter airframes with the same amount of, uh, yeah, of loads to take. Uh, the next step was as soon as you are able to build thinner wings with a full core um, inside in, instead of a, a hollow molded uh, uh, structure, you could save weight as well and build the airframe, especially the wing, much thinner so it penetrates better even at lower wing loading, which you can see right now in F5J. You know, they are... I would say from a performance point of view, much better than the old F3J planes, um, just because you can build them way thinner. You don't need to take the G loads on the launch. This is one reason. Mm. And you have this new building technology. So to answer your question, where will we go to? I would say it's, it's always interesting that you start off at a point and you can, let's say, double your performance within the first two or three years and then it's always getting um, yeah, to, to an improvement uh, reduction. You get an improvement of 10% and you get an, another improvement of 1% and then maybe 0.1%. So it's culminating at a point. And I would say with the given technology right now, um, we are pr- pretty close to having perfect planes out there. Yeah. Now, what, what's interesting about gliders when it comes to the design, because you're designing for peak performance. And when you test a glider, every time you throw one in the air, the air is different. Every day is different. And so mm-hmm. getting a baseline of whether you're improving or not could be a bit tricky because you've got this variable. How much work yeah. is being done on the computer and how much is, is being done out in the field? Mm, that's, a, that's, that's a tricky question because I would say there, there comes one more um, variable into in, into play, which is experience. 
Um, because when you when you first start off, you, you might have a 50-50, like 50% on the computer and 50% out in the field. But when you made experience, then I think um, the shift, when you learn the, the correct way, the shift would be to towards more time on the computer, less time on the field. Um, and this is actually what we can what we can observe in the last uh, ten years that we're designing something because we have some experiences with the um, predecessor model and yeah then something like the Pike paradigm is happening you you take it out and fly it and you do some two or three days of installation and it's it's ready for winning a world championship. Yeah, okay. And so in that development phase, are you getting, um, you know, are they making prototype models or or how are you testing the models before they go into production? Yeah, that's that's quite cool uh, because in former days, yes, uh, there were prototype models made from foam molds or something like that. And um, after you validated the airframe, then you thought about, okay, maybe with this and that amendments, we now can go to a molding phase. And these days actually are over. Um, right now, you're taking the, the uh, aluminium and you CNC mill directly in aluminium and you make high quality aluminium molds, which are, of course, very expensive and very sophisticated. But due to the, the design process being so much more, um, much more better than, than before and much more accurate. Uh, there are some, I would say, prototypes, which means that they are the zero series. They are out of the, the molds for the first time and you learn something for the, for the production phase. You learn maybe to put another patch of carbon here or there, uh, just to make the plane more rigid or more durable or you, understand that you want to have thicker push rods but it's it's not like that you change vast things on the airframe anymore yeah i suppose you're just progressing from one model to the next and can take your ex experience and learnings into the next um into the next project that's absolutely true yes and when you test a test a prototype what are you what are you looking for are you, is it you know have you verified the philosophy that you had in your head or you know <laughs> I suppose, it would, yeah. d depending on the model, it'd be different for the for the different um, types of competition as well. Yeah, you you really need to um, to differ between performance and handling here. And I think a lot of people get this wrong. They say, "Wow, this model has a great performance," but actually, what they want to tell you is, "I like it how it flies. I like the handling of the plane." And suddenly, when it handles nice, you, you think about, "Wow, it has a great performance." Um, and these both things, if you if you take them apart of each other, you can you can understand where to tweak the model, and then suddenly you figure out that they are interwoven as well. Because as soon as you have a plane which is handling much nicer, which takes less effort in piloting, you can get more performance out of it. And this is this is actually what I'm trying out as soon as I'm out on the field, uh, and with a new GPS triangle class. You get an instant feedback because you get all the data from the plane. You get data how much it sinks at which speed. You get data in which kind of air it's flying for the vario from the variometer. And when you go out, what I'm doing very often, early in the morning, so to say that I'm, I'm searching for really calm air to validate the plane's performance, 
then I, I get these numbers back. And yeah, this is, this is something which is quite nice to understand that what you're calculating is actually true. Um, maybe with some kind of offset between, uh, yeah, the, the perfect world and the computer and the real world out in the air. But, uh, in the end, it's, it's quite nice to understand. Yeah. The performance parameters are close to what you were looking for or even are better in some ways, maybe a little worse, but it meets, uh, the, the design constraint in, in a perfect way during the last 10 years, I would say. It was always like that. Um, what is, what, what, uh, we did in, in a way much better during the last two or three, um, uh, um, products which we made. That is actually the handling qualities. And I think this is what, what makes the Pike paradigm very special because with this huge rudder and, uh, the large dihedral, it's just so easy to thermal, even when it's heavy. And I think this is what, what people will understand when they're flying the plane. It's very easy in handling. And suddenly they turn this easy handling into a much better performance for themselves. Yeah. I've never heard someone explain that so well. That <laughs> your explanation, because it, it's true. You know, people say, you ask somebody, how does that, that, that model fly? Oh, it flies really well. But what does really well actually mean? Well, you've just explained yeah. what that means. It's that, and it's correct. You can handle the plane. And, you know, as I was saying to you off air, how, you know, my, my two biggest passions are um, gliders and, and aerobatics. And aerobatic planes is the same kind of thing. An aer a nice aerobatic plane is one that's easy to fly. Yeah, and it, and exactly. It's just handling. Now, whether, you know, and, and, and same with, you know, I, I've had a, a little um, DLG. and. Mm -hmm. well, I'm not going to mention which brand, um, yeah. but but it didn't handle very yeah. well, and yeah. so I didn't think it performed very well as a result of it not handling very yeah. well. Yeah, exactly. You you can determine uh, performance in L over D, for example. How much L over D does the plane have at uh, a given speed? Uh, when you drive up the speed, the L over D goes down, but in a, in a certain ratio. And so you can, you can show the performance of a plane in, in, in a well-known plane polar, for example. And these things, of course, you try and figure out, you try and, uh, optimize and you try and, uh, validate whilst you're out on the field. And actually with GPS triangle soaring, this is possible to validate right now, which wasn't possible in, in an FCJ plane. In an FCJ plane, you could go out, early in the morning as well and do some some sync rate tests which are of course dependent on on your flap setting so you can uh, optimize on your flap setting but there's as well dependent on uh, on the wing loading of the plane so a lighter plane even if it has worse handling will get the better performance in still air but it might change as soon as the air gets active and these these kind of, of interwoven uh, things leads us to a yeah to a to plane um, designs right now, which try and get the best performance at uh, the absolute best handling possible. Well, when it comes to performance, um, you have been a major player in the competition scenes. I'm looking at the different uh, titles that you've been involved in and, and, and either won or ended up you know, on the podium. You're the four-time mm -hmm. German, German champion in F3J, 1998, 99, 2000, 2011, 
So that's, that's over a long period of time when you think about it. 13 times F3J contest, Euro Tour overall winner. 13 times. That's yeah, right. Like, that, that's a big one. <laughs> it's a long time. Uh, two-time individual F3J European champion, three-time F3J two, team European champion, F3J team world, three times F3J team world champion, five times individual world champion GPS triangle. That is just amazing statistics there that uh, you know you you've competed at that that top level really and it sounds like you're very very into this this is like a major part of your life is okay the designing models but also competing are you still competing today at the same sort of level mm, true yes <laughs> <laughs> You are addicted to this model gliders, aren't you? It, definitely, definitely. It's it's a way of of thinking. I think there are some other people around uh, who would definitely second uh, my phrases. They would say, "Yes, of course." Now I'm in a phase of my life where I I get married, I have a family, I have children, I have a tough job, and I need to reduce model airplaning. But when you're sitting in the office, one or the other moment you just think about model airplanes it's it's always in your head you can reduce and you can step back for other reasons which are of course more important than playing around with toy airplanes but nevertheless it's it's a way of being a way of thinking and yeah i think it it will always haunt me well do you know what that that's consistent with everybody that i've spoken to including myself i haven't been doing a lot of flying lately i've been doing a lot of other different things but but it never goes away. And I'll give you an example. My wife will say to me, can you fix this thing? Whatever, something's broken. Mm -hmm. And I go, of course I can. I'm an aero modeler. It's my standard line, yeah. especially when it comes to having to glue something. It's like, yeah, of course yeah. I can do that. I'm an aero modeler. <laughs> so it does. And, and every day I talk to somebody that I've met through aero modeling that's, you know, my friend rang me this afternoon to tell me what happened at the flying field today. And uh, yeah. actually a couple of friends I've spoken to today about one that went to an event that it rained and nobody flew and another one went to the flying club and he gave me a bit of an update as to what was going on. So even if I'm not at the field, I'm still aero modeling. I'm still getting it from every direction. So... And doing this yeah. podcast, of course, is a great way that I enjoy my enjoy the hobby as well. And, and let me guess, you will you will glue it in the evening after a perfect day of flying, right? No, you won't go out there right away. Do you know what? It's always like that. <laughs> when you have a good day flying, the motivation levels are great. I, I always say there's <laughs> nothing better to clear your head than a great day yeah. out flying. Absolutely. <laughs> I just it, you just get that buzz. But I think what I've worked out through talking to so many people about this is our brains are wired aero modelers brains are wired in the same kind of way we're very active in our brains yeah we have absolutely. very strong ability to have a vision imagine if i own that model what's it going to be like to fly and this almost this emotional feeling kind of attachment yeah. to what it's going to be like yeah, absolutely if i go to my brother and i say hey look let's build a model i'll teach you how to fly it in about four months time you should be should be right to go right he would mm -hmm. say to me, four months? Can I buy one now or can I use it now? But we are yeah, modelers. Yeah. We we invest in this idea to exactly, bring the vision exactly. to life. Or when you're out on a competition and you see that, that, that your opponent is having an amazing flight and, yeah, beats everybody else, the, of course you go there and you want to know how he did it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's always in there. Yeah. The inquisitive mind. 
That's what I call yeah. it. We have inquisitive minds, we aero modelers. We want to know why. And and we want to keep on pushing, which is and you know what? If we weren't doing this, we'd probably be doing something else that was similar. You know? I always say Possibly, that yes. A lot of yeah. the aero modelers that I've interviewed uh, like motorbikes or cars, you know, restoring cars or modifying cars, mm-hmm. boats, yeah. fishing, all these activities that involves effort, planning, thinking, research. That's what we do. That's what we do. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So to, to compete at that top level, what does it take to be at the top? You know, in in my university days, I just thought it takes a lot of practice um, and a lot of time on on the sticks. It takes a lot of dedication in the workshop as well to get your things ready. And in a way, all of this is true. But there's right now, which I see um, after I, I have moved back to Germany, you know, I was living for 12 years in, in Istanbul in Turkey. and my life changed and I needed to take a lot more time um, yeah, for, for getting my job going, for getting my family going, for uh, considering yeah, all these, these much more important things because they're directly involved to your life than model airplaning. I figured out that it's also a lot about uh, psychology. You can, you can do a lot of mental training where you don't need to go out on the airfield and fly. You can do this in a in a quiet quiet half an hour, for example. You can figure out what's really important and where to focus your mind on. And these things really changed. And I think they changed to to make me a more efficient competitor than I was before. I think there were quite a few competitions in my life where I I said I wasn't efficient and because of this lack of efficiency, I, I didn't win or I lost uh, um, in, in that way uh, because you focus on the wrong thing. And yeah, then you need to understand as well that uh, soaring especially is a, um, it's a sports where, where one person can't always win. It, uh, you can be the strongest one, you can have the, the best plane, but there is still some some momentary um yeah brilliance which can uh, which you can lack at that time and maybe something else is coming to your mind which is uh yeah which is reducing your your performance on the on the airfield yeah these these kind of things and i think um all um topics put to each other in the perfect mix uh, they will they will give you the possibility to to win competitions. That makes so much sense. Uh, and it's interesting, the psychology of flying or the competing is something that that we aero modelers don't talk about very often. You know, I've spoken to some mm-hmm. people that fly freestyle aerobatics where you've got four-minute freestyle and there's a lot of pressure because, you know, you've got to get it right and you've got to fly to music and all that kind of stuff. And and the, and if you're nervous and you can't focus correctly or put, focus your energy in the right areas, then you know you don't perform that well. But there's always nerves. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's interesting. Like, and oh, personally, I, I always uh, this is the, the the consequence of having an inquisitive mind means that sometimes it's hard to slow down our minds as well. Yeah, and I yeah. have a lot of trouble in that. I, I'm playing a lot of table tennis, and the biggest thing that I have to say to myself in competitions is. Just focus because there's so much to think about 
And if you're trying yeah. to think about everything, you can just be like a runaway train where you're just totally in another. And I, I played a game last week in a competition and I looked back at my game and said, he wasn't much better than me, but yeah. the whole game was yeah. a blur. Uh-huh. It was just a blur. I was making poor decisions from shot to yeah. shot. I was making poor decisions. So so what are some of the ways, what are some of the techniques that you utilise to, to try to maintain focus? Um, one of the things which you, which you need to realise is that when you made a mistake, uh, you already made it. So um, I see a lot of competitors, and I always I, I saw myself as well, um, totally focus on this mistake after it happened. So you, you carry this mistake along as a heavy burden for the rest of your flight, and this uh, yeah will definitely harm your performance. So you you need to be either um, yeah focusing on the on the upcoming events in this flight or you need to say i will focus on this mistake later because maybe i can still learn something out of it but uh yeah this is this is one thing the other thing is some kind of excitement which you need to be able to handle um when i was younger i was very often very excited on the flying field and when you're too excited then you might not uh, be able to to read the signs around you especially reading the air um figuring out if if the weather is changing uh you need to have some kind of how to call it zen mentality <laughs> maybe like okay now you're you're grounded and now you can read everything which is going around you and you can even see what uh what the competitors are doing as well besides you uh these kind of things i'm, I'm talking about when it comes to you know turning up to an event do you have a predefined plan, you know, a broad plan as to the approach that you want to have, mm-hmm. or are you working it out as you go? Uh, no, I think it's very important to have a predefined plan, and it starts off when you when you make your gears ready. You know, you you want to polish your plane, you want to load your batteries, you want to have a routine um, where you can say, okay. If something extraordinary is happening on the field, then it's really extraordinary. I don't want to get surprised by a mistake which I could have had avoided in the foreground of the competition. And I see a lot of competitors, as soon as somebody is switching on uh, this, this, uh, this switch in their head and tell them, now it's competition, then they get nervous, then they do mistakes, then they don't know their gear, then they... Uh, don't understand if they have the battery charged or not. It's, it's quite interesting. And you can do this by a routine. It's, it's all mental as well. You say, okay, three days before the competition, I will go to the basement and charge my batteries. I will take a look upon my planes if everything is working. I will switch it on and, ta- and check the servos. It might sound stupid because, yeah, it worked before, so it should work on the competition as well. But I see so very often that People are getting totally overwhelmed by a, a dead servo uh, or something like that. If it might happen and you checked it, okay, then you, you did everything you could. But the problem is, if you get a little lazy with your equipment, then you should not argue that another person won. This is what I wanted <laughs> to say. <laughs> that's, um, that's true. Yeah, and then when you when you step onto the competition. I think you should follow your routines prior to the flight. Like, is everything switched on? Is everything working? Take an extra five minutes just to avoid uh, 
getting in a hurry because when you're in a hurry, you can't make decisions that freely as you want to have. Um, and then, of course, the weather comes in. Try and judge the weather. And this, of course, needs to have practice and experience. Like, what's the wind? Um, how do I want to take the start? What are the others doing? Um, is there, can I expect uh, huge thermals today? How will the thermals be? Will they be rough? Will they be uh, nice? Will they be soft? Uh, is there a lot of, uh, of sink uh, expected? What's my plan uh, in this kind of weather? Yeah, and then you're, in my opinion, good to go. So what I want to say is an, a competition is not starting with the with the working time or uh when you launch the plane it's already starting before that oh, very wise words you're a very smart man <laughs> I'm, I'm taking it when i'm silent it means i'm taking it all in and i'm taking mental notes and i'm just sitting there nodding saying oh that makes sense <laughs> so, when it comes to evaluating the environment because you might compete in different locations some might be areas that you've flown before others others not so when you come to australia i think this is is this your first time to australia absolutely and i'm, I'm really stoked and i'm really um yeah excited about it and it might be yes that i learned to know new weather as well i have a a fellow, so some fellow friends in Australia, which I know from my former days in F3J flying. Uh, one of them, of course, is Mike O'Reilly. And, uh, for example, Carl Strottens from Sydney. And yeah, we, he always told me, oh, when you come to Australia, the thermals, they are totally different. Mm -hmm. We have tiny little strong thermals, which are moving really fast and you need to make decisions. Uh, immediately because the sink is massive when you come back you need to read every feeder and so on and yeah i'm really looking forward to the, to, to experience that well i tell you what it's it is the way the weather's planning panning out at the moment in in adelaide where you're going it's going to be phenomenal because there's going to be some big thermals uh, so yeah. it and it is it is a very different environment i've, I've been to germany a number of times and through europe and and Australia is just different. It is it is going to be different, but I think it, I think you'll enjoy it. I think it's, you're going to have a, a great experience here. And and it, it, where you're going in South Australia, I call it the home of gliding, of model gliding. I don't know why. I think yeah. from yeah. you know as a young child reading magazines and hearing about flying in uh, model planes in South Australia, and of course there's some big names that help drive it along, like you mentioned, Mike O'Reilly. So uh, and yeah. of course the landscape there really lends itself to, to great thermaling and also. Very good slope soaring sites as well uh, in South cool. Australia. So yeah, I call it the home of uh, home of model gliding. So, do you turn up to a field? So you know, for example, you're going to turn up into Australia and you're going to have a look around. And what are you going to be looking for? Um, first of all, yeah, I, I hope I can can come there and will not be too much worn out uh, after the landing. And then, of course, uh, yeah, it, it's depending on, on Mike to take me along because, yeah, first of all, I need to give him huge thanks that, that he just uh, gave me that opportunity to come over to Australia. And then, yeah, I, I think instantly after, after a day or so, I think we will go out to the field because there will be a big F5J competition um, taking place before the, the GPS week. And there, I'm sure I will have a lot of time just uh, watching and taking some turns on the sticks and figuring out what the what the thermals really are. 
What I already did is, of course, <laughs> I went to Google Maps and took a look upon the airfield and uh, figured out uh, which direction has some tree lines. There's a lake in the vicinity and all of these things when the wind is coming from which direction. Yeah, and then um, I I'm sure as, as soon as I as I got a little rest, I will definitely be very happy to, to fly with my planes, you know, because I, I haven't flown since the beginning of November now. So it's almost four months, which I haven't flown. So you're going to have yeah. such a good time because you're coming into to really good gliding weather here. And and as I said, in, in South Australia as well, you're attending the 50th anniversary Southern Soaring League event. And whilst we're thanking people, there's a whole bunch of people that have really helped to get you here and we've got to thank them i've got a list here we've got the mAAA uh the league of silent flight australia model aerosports south australia that really helped southern soaring league uh, of course and the morton region sports soaring association because after yeah. you go to adelaide you're going to queensland aren't you right i will go to brisbane and do another program and when i'm when i'm when i say program uh i want to to do it as interactive as possible. So I want to be there for the people to try and uh, help them with their uh, questions, with their way into hopefully flying more GPS triangle. Um, of course, I will have a, a bunch of, so to say, um, yeah, uh, talks with me. It's it's not like a like a TED talk you might know from yeah. from YouTube. Yeah. I want to make it much more much more interactive. But we can we can talk all about this like what we talked about right now. I think there will be a lot of topics like especially competing competition soaring, like model setup, which is very often um, done wrong. So you can learn a lot about that. And of course, and this is my biggest wish. We can do a lot of GPS triangle soaring to to get people to this new level of model uh, soaring, which definitely builds a bridge between um, model gliding as we know it and full size uh, gliding uh, sports. Well, I've had John Copeland on the podcast, and if anybody wants to know the ins and outs of GPS yeah. triangle racing, I suggest go and have a look at the the episode uh, that I did with John Copeland because. We really had a bit of a deep dive into what it is, but what do you love about it? Because it sounds like this is your your, your latest passion in gliding. Absolutely. You know, first of all, I need to thank John Copeland as well because I think he has a lot of credit to to take for uh, me coming over to Australia. I I learned to know John on a world championship in, in GPS triangle flying, and he's such a nice guy. And it kind of combines my uh, previous life as an F3J pilot, where I learned to know all the other guys, including Mike O'Reilly, and uh, my new life in, in GPS triangle soaring, where I met with John Copeland, and now all things come together, and I get get invited to come over mm -hmm. to Australia, which is just it's just amazing. Yeah. Um, but the the real essential thing is, as soon as I figured out that you get a um, you get some information from your plane whilst you're flying. This is different from, from a um, thermal duration competition where this might be a, a no-go or a showstopper because 
you want to give credit to the people or the, to the pilots who are able to read the air from the ground. That's the essential thing on thermal duration competitions. But this is different in, in GPS triangle because you're not flying to stay airborne. You're flying, it's one step ahead. You're flying to travel as far as possible, um, using the updraft currents in the air as good as possible. It's a little bit like, I don't know if you have migrating uh, birds in, in Australia, but mm. these, these kind of things, you need to spare as much energy to go as far as possible. And you have the instant um, uh, feedback from your plane. You have a variometer in your ear and you have your navigation screen in front of you. And then it's always like juggling. Do I go and hit another leg, another triangle? but losing height and maybe being on the ground in the next five minutes so I can't go on? Or am I taking this thermal to the maximum altitude and then go on? While somebody else might fly two or three triangles because he got good air somewhere else. And yeah, this is, this is amazingly exciting. It is. It is and, I, and I really like the idea of that, that sports class, you know, um, and are we still sort of in the infancy of, the sport class itself. It doesn't sound like it's been here for 10 years or so. How long has it, that category been around? Um, I think the first sport class competitions were held in 2016. Yeah. Because after, um, yeah, after a lot of people said, yeah, it's, it's nice. This, this class is just amazing for, um, yeah, for doing a kind of sportive cross country flying whilst you're standing on the ground but they don't want to do it with uh, expensive and large scale gliders, or they even don't have a scale glider. Then uh, the sport class was evolving from that with large planes so that they are visible even at uh, yeah, intermediate to high distances and they have quite good performance. Yeah, and this is what brought up the sports class. And actually I think it combines a lot between, or it, it just, fills this gap perfect between scale class and F5J. You know, you have your plane in your car, you build it up within 10 minutes and you're good to go. And you don't do this with a big scale glider. No, no, it's a lot easier. No, I love the idea. I always wish that all I wanted to do was go gliding because then I wouldn't need a trailer. To, you know, I wouldn't need to carry big, big models and fuel and all the other accessories. I think life would be simple if I just flew gliders and forget about all the other powered planes. <laughs> <laughs> but the when you go out now flying, is it predominantly mm -hmm. G, GPS triangle now? Absolutely, absolutely. It's just sometimes we're we're having a a slope weekend with all the guys. Um, yeah, we we take off a weekend from the family and then we go to some close mountains to two hours to go with a car, and we're having a yeah, a boys weekend on the slope. Okay, then I don't take out the GPS equipment. Mm. But whenever I go to the to the flying site, um, I will build up my my navigation tripod and go flying because you have a, a totally different understanding of what you're doing. You and you you always have a task, you know, you're not just going up and you fly, but you go up and you can judge the air, you can understand how good you were flying today, even though if the weather is flat, you can figure out to um, to fly more precise. You always have this this task, and you have some instant um, feedback from your glider. 
what what height do you launch to in the GPS triangle racing? Um, that's different. It's differing with the classes. Um, we have the light class, which you fly with F5J planes, which is quite nice because there are so many F5J planes around. So almost everybody can can get a uh, an equipment, stuff it into an F5J plane, make it ready to go, and then you go up. And there you fly um, on a triangle course where the turn points are 200 meters away from you and you enter at 200 meters of altitude. So it's all okay. very close to you. It's not that yeah. much on the ground uh, like in F5J where you try and, and fly as low as possible when you hit the thermal. But nevertheless, it's it's in, a, in, a, in an area where small thermals are still around and you need to work a lot of small thermals. And for the, for the sports class, you have the triangle turning points 350 meters apart from you and you are uh, allowed to enter at 400 meters of altitude. So you might uh, encounter a different thermal activity because you're higher up. And for the scale class, the numbers are 500 meters for the turning points and 500 meters for the start. Do you have good eyesight? Because I've I've seen some of these models flying at a very high altitude and I, I start to yeah. question, which way is that model facing? Sure. Yeah, but you need to understand there are two things to it, or at least three, maybe even. Um, the first thing is you need to make sure that the planes are easy to, uh, to see. The visibility needs to be high. And all of these planes, they have a dark lower side so that you can easily understand it. Maybe once you, you watch some birds soaring and they're small, they have maybe one and a half or two meters of wingspan, but you can see them at five or 600 meters because they are dark spots in the sky. Yeah. And the full-size glider with a wide lower side, uh, sometimes you, you have lost it immediately and you can't find it back in the air. And the same counts for, for models. You should make your, your plane visible from the lower side. So lower side should be dark blue, gray or, or black. And that helps a lot. And the, the second thing is, you get used to it, actually. You get really used to it flying at higher altitudes. You just need to do it. And the third thing is you always have the instant feedback and you see it on your, um, on your screen. And if the plane is, uh, uh, is, is falling from the sky because you haven't seen it, you can still see how rapidly it's going down on your, on your screen and you can pull out the brakes immediately so you don't lose it. And then you might find it back and it's, it's very easy to do so. Um, which is actually, yeah, very seldom the case. Some newcomers, if you, yeah, if, if you don't understand it, you really need to practice flying in, in higher altitudes. Maybe sometimes they're doing a mistake, but with this instant feedback, yeah, you can instantly find your plane on your screen again. Oh, that's interesting. But, but even then, you, you know, you've got your eyes on the model, but then you've got to move your eyes down to look at the screen. And then back uh, to the not, model. Not necessarily, because you, in especially in the competition, you always have a navigator. You're flying in okay, a team. Yeah. yeah, your team partner is is the navigator, and in the next uh, slot, uh, you you turn the the topics so that you are the navigator and your team partner is flying, mm. which is quite nice because it really makes it a kind of teamwork. Yeah, yeah, so I like that. You, you necessarily don't need to look down on your on your screen. And the second thing is you have your ear pin, your ear pins in, and yeah. they just tell you which direction to fly. You know, when you hear your variometer on the left ear, that means you need to steer left to hit the, the next turn point, the, the possible best way. 
And when you hear your variometer in the right ear, you need to steer to the right until you hear your variometers in both of your ears, then you're on the correct course. Oh, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and how's, how is the GPS triangle racing going in Europe? Is it is it getting more popular? Bit by bit it is. Uh, I think the, the time with Corona, we yeah, have put everything to a halt. I can see it in almost every uh, competition class. Might it be F3B, F3J or other classes? Um, people learn not to move so far anymore, which is quite sad. But during the last year, actually, we had very good competitions, always between uh, 16 to 30 pilots on a, on a competition. And that's good. I think it's, it's very vivid when you have 30 people competing in a, in a triangle race, because then you will have three groups with 10 pilots each. And you really are out to fly a lot. That's that's actually a, a really different thing from other soaring competitions. For example, if you go out flying F3F, which is very nice because you only need to have the wind, the slope, and the plane. But then you fly one minute, and the task is over, and then you wait another hour till you fly the next minute. And this is different in GPS. You will fly thirty minutes, and then you're out uh, calling for thirty minutes. It's a little break, and then you fly again 30 minutes. This can wear you out on the one hand, but on the other hand, it definitely makes you a better pilot. I do love that team aspect of glider competition. I visited a, a, a club near me, and they were running um, the Altitude Limited um, soaring competition. Mm -hmm. and, and it was almost like every 20 minutes, you were it was your turn again. And it was like, okay, doesn't matter what I did in the past. It's another round yeah. now, so you never know what's going to happen. And all the pilots, because they were helping each other out, you know, with, with partners, they were actively involved in the competition. It's not like you go to a pattern flying competition and you'll sit down for most of the day and, oh, it's my turn, I better go yeah. and have a, have a fly. I, I love that idea that you're always involved. You're always in, active. Yeah, yeah. active in, in you know, in the competition. Uh and I suppose with the GPS triangle racing, it would be exactly the same as well. And it's getting Absolutely. it's getting becoming more popular. I think the more we talk about it, uh, and yeah. the more people think, wouldn't that be wonderful to do that? And as yeah, you said, it, it, it brings it closer to to full size gliding as well in the way that they compete. It so, really um, builds the bridge. It builds the bridge between between models and and full size gliders in this sporty way. Yeah. But I I also think yeah, it's it's getting more popular. You know, in, in former days, it was sometimes tough to get the equipment going. But right now, um, we have really good equipment and it's working. And, um, yeah, this might be easier to use now for the, for the competitors. Of course, you need to learn and understand all this new technology. It's like when you, when you start off flying electric gliders and you never flew electric and you want to max out, uh, everything out of your of your uh, components then you need to understand how to run software on your esc controller and you need to know how to charge the batteries and it's quite similar when you go out and, and fly gps triangle you need to understand how to run the equipment and uh yeah the equipment shouldn't force you to to think about how to do things because then you can't focus on the competition 
So there is, of course, some effort to take in the beginning. You need to learn how to use and how to install the equipment. Is the equipment becoming more user-friendly as, as uh, the sport progresses? Definitely, definitely. But one needs to understand it's, it's not a plug-and-play issue. And I think it will never be because it's such a complex um, uh, task to fly GPS triangle that you need to understand about so many things. You need to understand about using the variometer, about um, uh, navigating on the on the course. You need to understand how to build up your your ground station so that you can easily handle it. You need to understand how to install all the components into the into the airframe. Um, but as soon as you did this, I would say it takes, if you have an hour to spare uh, yeah, in, in, a, in a weekday evening, then maybe yeah, do this for, for two or three evenings and take your time and uh, then you're good to go. But it, it won't work like taking it out of the box, installing it and you're, you're fine. This I think will never happen with GPS triangle. It's a sophisticated sports. But I think it's the same in full-size gliding. When you have your navigation equipment in there and you want to fly a triangle task in full-size, you really need to prepare as well. Well, I think we aero modelers, we don't mind spending that time to learn something new. And, and what I always find is once you've done it once, it all becomes easier. That's so. true. Absolutely. And as well, there, there is a crowd in the com community out there which is able to help. And as soon as you take a look upon the manufacturer's website on rcelectronics.eu, you will get a lot of links to, um, to videos where people are installing and explaining and you have it in English and in German now. So, yeah, I think we need to understand that things are changing, that you need to use maybe some installation uh, videos, etc. But yeah, if you have some time and having a beer in the evening and taking a look upon a YouTube video instead of something else, then I think you can learn a lot. Isn't that good with the internet now? If we want to find out yeah. something, we can find it. Yeah, and we can we can talk all over the globe. You know, you're sitting in in Australia right now, whilst I'm still in Germany. It's just uh, yeah, due to the internet. And uh, I was I was I had to fix a lawnmower the other day for cutting grass. And yeah. uh, I, I watched a YouTube video. I had the I had my iPad open, and the mower sitting mm -hmm. there. And I was watching the YouTube video, and there was a lady in America that was showing how to fix this part and, and replace <laughs> this part. And I'm watching it, and then, and then of course something fell off that was outside of the video. I'm sitting there, what happened now? And I went, all right, I'm an aero modeler. I'll work it out. Now, there's a spring here. There's a piece of metal here. This must go somewhere. Where does that go? This connects to this. And you just solve the problem. And then the satisfaction that I had when I fixed it and then I cut mm -hmm. the grass, it was like, I did that. Yeah. I fixed the mower. I am now a mower mechanic. I learned it from a YouTube video. Thank you very much. Yeah. No, that's 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 definitely a new thing, and it, it's definitely a part of of GPS soaring as well. Yeah. Now we've got, we're lucky we've got John Copeland here, who's more than happy to help people get up to speed with uh, with GPS yeah. triangle racing. And as I've understood, there are a lot of F5J pilots in Australia, and yes, I think a lot of them might have also some old heavy F3J plane or heavy F5J plane which they might not want to use anymore. But 
heavy is good for GPS because uh, you want to go somewhere. It's totally different than, than just flying thermal duration. So before selling it, maybe you want to put a uh, navigation equipment in and try out GPS triangle soaring because the nice thing is you already have the plane. You know, you don't need to buy one. That is true. Maybe we can, there was a very popular brand of planes, gliders here in Australia, made by a company called Southern Sailplanes. And they made a mm -hmm. model called the Ricochet. And it was a molded okay. glider. And they're, they're, and they're now, they're beautiful looking plane. Now, I've got, I bought yeah. one that was sitting in a friend of mine's shed because when I was a child, when I was younger, I, this is the, that was the go-to model. That's what everybody dreamed of having. And if you talk to anybody about those models, they'll say, yeah, they're, they're heavy compared to, to today's standards. But but there's, they probably make a really good GPS racer. Why not? Yeah. Because <laughs> And to be honest, in, in the beginning, it really is not about the plane. You know, yeah. a lot of people just think, oh, I can't compete because I don't have such a plane. I don't have the latest and greatest. And especially in GPS, you want to have a plane which is easy to fly, which is tracking well, which you know. And then, first of all, you need to understand and learn about flying with the navigation equipment. It's much more important than asking about what kind of plane you're flying. Yeah, that's true. That is true. I just want to quickly say, for people who don't know what GPS triangle racing is, it's exactly that. There's a triangle and uh, mm -hmm. you have to fly around the points of the triangle and it's all exactly. about how many laps you can complete, isn't it? In, is it in a yeah. certain time yeah. frame? It's absolutely like that. You have a certain time frame, which is 20 minutes in the light class or 30 minutes in the other classes. And then you're standing more or less in the middle of the base of the triangle and every turn point is the same amount away from you um so you have let's say in the sports class 350 meters to your right there's a turn point and then you fly up to the tip of the of the triangle which is 30 uh, 350 meters uh in front of you and then the third triangle point is 350 meters to your left and you're always flying leftbound around the triangle and when you start, you're not allowed to, to launch or to, to start the triangle task higher than 400 meters and faster than 120 kilometers per hour. If you do so, you get penalties because, of course, the higher you start, the more triangles you can get. So this would make it uh, a very easy solution, but it should be sporty. So you have a start and the start line is between you and the tip of the triangle. And when you fly from left to right towards the turning point one, you will start your clock. So the clock is not started from the ground. It started automatic, automatically when the plane is crossing the start line. And from then on, your 30 minutes are running. When you have no air, then it's just like a downhill race, so yeah. to say. So you try to, to, to fly as accurate as possible around the triangles at your best speed of uh, glide. So you want to maximize your glide ratio. And in the sport class, that means if you're really good and the air is not windy, you might be able to, to fulfill six triangles and land. You need to make a landing, it's not a precision landing like an F5J, but you need to land on a landing spot, which is actually a landing field. And when you're inside, you get the landing points because we want to avoid somebody's trying in critical altitude to fly along the triangle and maybe hit a tree or hit a barn or something else. Mm. So 
it's really important to land because it counts as much as two triangles. So before you think about, ah, I want to make one more because this is what's decisive, the guy with the most triangles will win, you rather should land. And nevertheless, if, going back to this downhill race in zero air, you do six triangles in about 12 minutes. So you have 18 more minutes to work on. So imagine what happens when the thermal sets in. If thermaling is allowed, or if, if it's just possible, then the fun begins. And then you drive up uh, your speed between the thermals. You try to hit the thermals. You try to locate the thermals. You try to maximize the thermals. And this is what it's all about. A lot of people are always telling, oh, it doesn't look like racing. You know, we are calling it GPS yeah. triangle racing. It's more, in my opinion, it's more like a thermal regatta. Yeah, that's true. How many gliders are in the air? Is it multiple in the air at the same time? Yeah, yeah. You're flying in groups. It's a man-on-man -man race, and the best one in one group will get a thousand points, and the other one will get per mil points. So there are minimum three gliders in the air, um, but mostly on a competition, we are flying with six to twelve gliders in the air. I'll tell you what, I'm getting excited listening to it. Uh... It, it is, it yeah, is. especially when you're a glider guy and you're just watching it, that it's really interesting for you as well because you can understand how uh, the the competitors are doing at the moment. And you see mm. one's circling, but he's giving up uh, maybe one or two triangles to the other. And then maybe everything is changing as soon as he has the perfect height and he's come, going up there into a different air mass. and. Yeah, the other one is on the ground and he's still flying two or three or four more triangles. So, yeah, for, for a glider guy, that's really exciting. And so when you land, do you download data to see how many laps you did and things like that? Or mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, um, there is a link to your, to your navigation ground unit, which is always storing. It's logging the data. Hmm. And after that, you're just uploading it to a website, which is calculating um, all the all the results. Uh, this is called rcmodelspot.com. You can look it up. And on RC, yeah, on rcmodelspot.com, we also have from this year on the opportunity to, um, to replay tasks. We did this on, on last year's oh. World Championship in, in Germany. You can figure out it, you can figure it out on YouTube. There is yeah. one session where Daniel Eberly, um, Andre Vrecher, he is the producer for all these gadgets and the host of the rcmodelspot.com site and me, we were um, doing some comments on one world championship task. And there you can see how, for example, my teammate Tobias is flying against Daniel and how excited we get and how exciting it was actually. It's a little bit like when you take a look upon the full-size soaring Grand Prix, and you can see the virtual planes flying, that's amazing. Like you could, it, it, it's interesting. <laughs> I went to an IMAC aerobatic <laughs> event recently, and yeah, and yeah. and I, as I said, I, I do love aerobatics, but the, yeah. the, the the challenge with with aerobatic competitions uh, is human error in judging. That the biggest mm -hmm. complaint is. Oh, this judge, you know, how can I yeah. get yeah. 10 points from one judge and five for another for the same maneuver? And I've always thought, well, we've got to move to other data logging 
and compare the data and yeah. and 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 that's what GPS racing is doing. You don't really need to have a judge. It's just well, the data's yeah. there. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. here it is. You don't need to worry yeah. about yeah. training judges. Exactly. You need a landing judge who can tell you, okay, is the plane outside or inside? Yeah, but this is even visible. It's not like yes. uh, yeah. I give you a 10 or a 9. No, it's either yeah, yeah. outside or inside. It's obvious. Yeah, did it happen um, or it didn't. Yeah. Yeah. But for the for following up an event, you know, this is even even interesting for people who stayed home or are in Australia whilst the competition is taking place in in Germany, and in the evening they can uh, they can real uh, yeah replay the uh, the locked data and see on the screen where which glider is flying and at which altitude it is, how much rest time he has, and how many laps he already did. So it's quite exciting for, for spectators as well, because you don't need to look up uh, whilst you're on the field. No, you can stay at home and have the instant data of the, of the flying planes. It's just, I know what I'm doing. Once we're finished, I'm actually going to YouTube to watch some races. So, so thanks for putting yeah. me onto that. Now, okay, so let's move on. Yeah, I can, I can try and, and send you the link. Oh, so that'd be awesome. Send me some links yeah. and then I can share them around. Yeah. That'd, that'd be perfect. Now, 2023 plans. You're coming to Australia. You're are you going to be? You're currently as this is as people listen to this. You're in South Australia at the the uh, Southern Soaring League's uh, 50th anniversary event, where there's an F5J comp, I think, and then there's a, a a big GPS event as well. I think I think by my calculations, you're probably in the midst of the uh, the GPS event. But to after that event, where else do you go? I notice here you're going, you are going to Queensland, as I mentioned, March 25th. Mm-hmm. I know that you're going to be, I just had a look, and March 25th, you're going to be, where are you going to be? Yeah, uh, before that, um, I will, I will stay a little in, in, in Adelaide. Uh, yeah, sightseeing, et cetera. Then I take a flight to Brisbane. I will do the same in Brisbane as well. And then, yeah, it's it's already time to, to, to do some talks and some flying in Brisbane. And then I'm flying back home on Monday, the 27th. That is excellent. Uh, that is just going to be an awesome trip. You're going to have a great time. And, and you'll get to Adelaide. I'm really looking forward. Mike O'Reilly will look after you. He's, he's, he's one of the true gentlemen of our hobby down here in Australia, very well-respected person. And he's, he's one of those guys that he truly loves the hobby. I can second that. Yes, he's run a successful business in the hobby, but underpinning all that is this sheer love of going to the field and having a fly. And if you ask him, he'll tell you, I love Mm -hmm. the gliders. It's the gliders is his his favourite thing and and, uh, good on him. And and he's really done a lot for for the sport here in in Australia. So well done. And, and of course, a big thank you to John Copeland as well for for, for putting me on to you, which is good. And, And, again, he's been another pioneer in that GPS triangle racing as well after australia what are your plans for the year any world champs or anything like that? yes actually actually there's another world championship this year you know they're in turns uh, every even year there's the the sports class world championship and in the odd years we have the scale class world championship and this year in the mid of august there will be the scale class world championship here in germany um, yeah, and I'm I'm looking forward to to this as well. Be what model? So these these are the that? big stakes this year, you know. Yeah, number yeah. one, Australia, of course, um, and number two is is the World Champs in in August. And I'm really looking forward to flying sports class this year as well. 
because at the moment I need to admit it's my favorite class because you can easily toss the plane. It's even, even easily flyable almost everywhere, but it almost has the performance of a big ship. So yeah, I'm looking forward for the sports class competitions too. I think the sports class is going to become very popular. I really hope so. I, that's, at least it deserves it. Yeah. Well, you might add another. You might add another title to your to your trophy cabinet. I think this year, the way things are going, we'll we'll give you a head start in Australia. You're gonna you're gonna love it here. I just yeah. Australia is <laughs> just such a good place for gliding, really. When you think about, it. and it's the right time of year for it, as I, as I've mentioned. So, um, I can't wait for you to send me a message after your trip and tell me how it all went because I think uh, I know yeah. you're gonna have a great time. Okay, Philip, we've come to the end because we've been talking for a while now. We're doing really well, which is good. Time yeah, flies absolutely. when you're having yeah, fun. It's just, it's just past. Yeah, we, we could have done three uh, groups in GPS Triangle. Oh, yeah, that's right. Look, that look I can always <laughs> talk to you again at another time. That's the good thing. Perfect. It's very easy yeah. for us on the internet now. So, yeah. okay, final question. It's a question that everybody can't wait to hear the answer. Because it's hmm. we don't we never know which way people are going to go. You, it's I've been surprised in the past. But what has been your all-time favorite model? <sighs> that is a tough. I, one. Know, I know it's not uh, a Piper Cub. So no, that's can, that's for sure. We can that's narrow it down. Sure. Uh, actually, of course, it is. It is a. It, it is one of my planes uh, because uh, for me, it is. It is such a satisfaction to to develop planes build planes and then finally fly them but it's absolutely tough to pick only one you know because in my mind actually at the moment there are three and i will i will name all all three of them because the first one is definitely the the first prestige which we built from zero all in ourselves in in turkey whilst i was living in turkey for the turkish f3j team around mustafa koç and uh this was so special because we had new materials new building technologies and i think we were the first ones to to really incorporate them on an fcj plane and the result was a marvelously good flying fcj plane and i still like to fly so this is my number one the number two of course is the an66 out of the same reasons because we built them totally from scratch uh, on ourselves but this time it wasn't a design which we made uh, it's a scale plane as you know and the original design is from 1966 from a swiss designer called albert neukom and we had the opportunity to go to the archives of his uh, plans his son is archiving all of these things and we were researching on this glider and making it to one of the best uh, GPS triangle scale gliders. And I was winning, uh, yeah, four titles with this glider. And the third one actually is the Pike Paradigm right now, because this glider is, yeah, it's, it's so amazing in flight, uh, especially when it comes around the handling. When we were designing it, Benjamin Rodax took real emphasis on especially the, the handling qualities, uh, getting the numbers of spiral stability right so that you can easily thermal it. Um, and it has absolutely no tip stall tendencies. And it's such a pure joy to fly. You know, whenever I'm building up this glider, I'm getting exciting and I'm doing this for 
for a long while now and momentary i would say from from the performance as well as from the handling qualities the the pike paradigm is my my absolutely favorite model well philip you're an absolute legend and the passion just keeps on coming out of you and it got me thinking that really the the gliding community in our in our hobby are probably among the most passionate people and and we see a lot of them fly for a long period where other people might fall by the wayside and take up another hobby the glider pilots really enjoyed doing it it's been a pleasure to have a chat with you and I, we will do this again at some other point in time because there's more to talk about i know but I hope you have a good trip here in Australia. Uh, for yeah. anybody that just uh, wants to hear more from Philip, especially if you're in Queensland, because by the time this comes out, he's at an event in South Australia. But uh, up in Queensland, March 22nd to the 25th, Philip is going to be around. Uh, go to the, the – for anybody that wants to know more about F Philip's trip – up in Queensland, visit the MAAQ website. You all know where that is, MAAQ.org, and go and have a look at their March events, and you'll see three links on their homepage under March 2023 for the different days that Philip will be out there, and he'll be doing some presentations and some demonstration flights as well. So, oh, gee, it's going to be a good trip. <laughs> I'm absolutely looking forward to that. And yes, of course, if there's any time uh, in the future, why not? Let's have another chat. Uh, yeah. I would really love it. And thank you very much for having me. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted. And what an episode. Gee, we've had a lot to talk about this week. Uh, so, yeah, big thank you to Philip for joining me, making that effort. Um, what I'm finding, this fortnightly schedule for the podcast is giving me a bit more time to find some guests and to schedule some time. So it's always a challenge trying to interview people from overseas to get the, the, the scheduling right because the time differences are just massive. So managed to get it done with philip which was good uh i'll be back in another fortnight but uh i just want a big shout out to all the organizations that helped bring philip out i mentioned them in the um in the recording uh it's it really helps the local scene when you can get some big names out from overseas to to inspire the local flyers and share their knowledge as well so that we can all benefit and grow and also a big shout out to the achuka model aero club that's having a come try day uh, we did a bit of work, helped them behind the scenes to, to get the numbers there, and it's sold out. They have literally sold out their Come Try Day on the back of Facebook ads. I've been talking about it for years. If you're running a Come Try Day, if you're running an event, no matter where you are in the world, get to Facebook and pay to have some advertising. We didn't spend a lot of money, um, but uh, well done to the Chuka crew for, for getting that up and running. That's happening this coming weekend as well. Uh, so all the best to the Chuka Club. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, uh, how the uh, participants enjoyed the day. So keep on flying. If you're in Australia, this is flying season. Get down to an event. Plenty happening. Hopefully we'll be at the Bragg Club this weekend. We'll see how things pan out. Get onto Facebook, uh, the Flat Out RC Facebook page and Instagram. Like it. And don't forget, new video out uh, on the Flat Out RC YouTube channel uh, shot at the Wang Jets event. Oh, I'm puffed out. We've had to cover so much. Hope you're enjoying the hobby. I'll be back in a couple of weeks.